You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, decisive indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Adam Kotzko, who teaches in the Scheimer Great Books School at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. He has published widely in popular and academic outlets on theology, political theory, and philosophy, with particular emphasis on politics and the history of Christian thought. Adam has authored 10 books, including recent works, The Prince of This World in 2016 and Neoliberalism's Demons in 2018, both with Stanford University Press, and 2020's Agamben's Philosophical Trajectory with Edinburgh University Press. His new book, which is our occasion for conversation today, is titled What is Theology? Christian Thought and Contemporary Life, published in late 2021 by Fordham University Press. Adam, hello. How are you? Great. How about you? I'm good. It's really good to have you here and uh, have a chance to talk about your book. Um, I really like the book. I picked it up, um, you know, after... Uh, the announcement came out. I think I had it on pre-order. I'm a big pre-order person and um, was super intrigued just by the title and the theme and interested in sort of revisiting questions of, of theology and politics and um, well, had really had high hopes for it. And this is a book that uh, matches every one of those. It's just really exceptional bit of work. It's incredibly um, intelligent, smart, very... Um, creative i think it's really uh it's in its own way a very unique book uh, but also really readable so thank you for that it's these are not easy figures to write about and and write about in a readable way but um just wanted to start off with that i mean i really love the book and i want to thank you for writing it i know that uh, books are a full uh, existential project yeah no, thanks that means a lot um so i wanted to ask you you know, just as a way of getting started, um, a sort of invitation to narrate us, uh, narrate for us uh, your way into the project. And I mean that in the broadest sense, you know, perhaps there are personal dimensions um, or intellectual dimensions, a set of uh, ethical and philosophical concerns that you had, because as I said, you know, a book is an existential event, right? It takes up everything. And so, you know, something obviously very serious motivates all of us as book writers, so what what brought you to this project and why write it now? Yeah, this is a, a project that's been kind of brewing in the back of my mind for, for many years. Um, and I'm glad that the responses that people have given to me so far, including yours uh, just now, but also people kind of tweet about it or they post about it on Facebook or something like that, that people have found it to be meaningful because the one thing that worried me about it is that it could come across as a little, you know, self-indulgent to hmm. collect like several essays that like, if somebody was interested, they could have like tracked down like the earlier version of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
and partly I did want to do a bit of like a retrospective, not for the sake of producing like the Adam Kotzko reader or something like that would really have been <laughs> yeah. self-indulgent, but, and uh, not necessary, but it kind of to take stock of like, what have I been doing all these years? Uh, maybe this mm-hmm. was my midlife crisis project or something, um, uh-huh. you know, with kind of the, the one-two punch of like the Prince of this World and then neoliberalism's demons, I felt like my thing had kind of come together in a, in a form of clarity um, that I didn't have before. Um, and I had like clarified some of the methodological points and kind of like what I'm after with theology and with political theology and with all these figures I've been working with. And with that in mind, I kind of returned to some of the earlier works that seemed to anticipate these points mm-hmm. and that pieces that I was proud of and that I thought fit in with this broader project that, um, that had started to get some momentum with Prince of This World and Neoliberalism's Demons, but that were otherwise kind of just laying um, dormant, uh, you know, just kind mm-hmm. of like off to the side. I put it in a journal somewhere. Nobody's ever going to see it. And so... Um, And I also felt like there were some types of pieces of writing that I wanted to do that it didn't seem like they would fit anywhere but in an essay collection, Uh Um, especially the opening essay where I do the kind of typology of of what are philosophy and theology and political theology and how they fit together. Like, I cannot picture that passing peer review in any, like, disciplinary journal. (laughs) Um, It's just like... It's just not the right genre. And also the kind of experimental nature of the final two essays on race and original mm-hmm. sin and race and the Trinity. Like maybe someday I'll be able to return to that as a book project. But for right now, I wanted to be able to think experimentally and kind of to have the new material in the book kind of fit in with the more experimental vibe of all of the like previous, the previously published mm-hmm. pieces. Um, and make it like a, a book of essays kind of in the true sense of like attempting something, not having a definitive word. Um, and the fact that people have said that it kind of works, um, that's really gratifying for me. It really does. And, and I like, I mean, I like it for the, the sort of pithiness of, of the phrase, but a midlife, uh, midlife uh, project, I think is a really interesting uh, you know, I had never thought of that. And, and as someone working on a sort of published, unpublished uh, collection myself, I really like that because for exactly what you said about, you know, the introductory piece on, on doing a typology, I mean, in some ways, that's what books are for, right, is to, to have these moments of being able to make a broader set of claims that no journal really wants to host, um, you know, because, you know, typologies are not exactly essays uh, yeah. in most journals, uh, but also that sense of retrospective. I mean, you're someone who's, who's, you know, published, you know, really aggressively for years. And, and I think these kinds of retrospective moments are great for us as authors, but also as readers, because, you know, as a reader, I didn't read it as a collection of essays that you were putting together, I read it as exactly what, how you described it as a, as a gathering together of a set of thoughts that you had. And therefore you're sort of able to recalibrate it because mm-hmm. collections of essays are, I think they're interesting objects by themselves when they're single authored uh, essays, 
because they never really stand alone. They, they're so deeply entwined with each other. And I, th- I think the book really fits uh, well that way. Um, That's great. And oh, go ahead. Yeah, I actually, um, and you know, I, I did kind of deal with this insecurity uh, the entire time I was working on it. And like, um, I sought out a, an advance contract um, simply mm-hmm. because because of the fact that I couldn't probably place any of the new material in a, in any journal setting. Like I wanted to have some more security that the project was going to really happen, but I'll admit that I kind of phoned in the, the description of the individual essays. Like I use pre-existing abstracts or something like that just to kind of like get (laughs) the, get the proposal out the door. And the infamous reviewer number two was like, this doesn't fit together at all. It feels like just, this mess of stuff. I don't understand why we're doing Bonhoeffer and we're doing race and we're doing, and maybe this just isn't ready for prime time. And I read that report and I was like, man, maybe he's right. (laughs) Or or he or she is right. And, um, but my editor kind of talked me down and the more I worked on it, the more confident I became in what I was doing. And like, I could see how everything was connected. And I think you can see that in the preface where I'm kind of describing how they all fit together. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, so it was a, it was a weird project for me because usually when I set out to do a book, like I know exactly what I want to do. Like, and I write it all like kind of right then, like when I've told, told people about my writing approach like they're kind of horrified (laughs) like I just do it just like boom 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 when I'm writing it and like um kind of my division of labor is also my division of the organization and um I write it all in one go or I just don't write it and so trying to Uh assemble like previously written stuff or like that they don't all like fit as like just steps in this argument um, it was a very different kind of writing for me, but ultimately very rewarding. So uh, I have to say, you know, it takes a little bit of courage and uh, um, you know, a lot of uh, mental toughness to come back from reviewer two articulating your deepest insecurity about the project. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm glad that you did bounce back, you know, uh, re- you know, the infamous reviewer two, it's mythic, but also uh, sometimes a little bit, uh, a little bit too real. Um, and so let me ask you about the um, title of the book. You know, it's it's interesting. It's just what is theology, um, which of course, on first glance, makes any any sort of uh, brow a person browsing, you know, a catalog or you know, customers also bought on Amazon or however we do research these days. Um, you know, it evokes a sort of very short introduction type of P, you know, like Oxford and all of its knockoffs across presses. It's mm-hmm. obviously the opposite of that, right? It's a very uh, complicated project. The thinkers you address, none of them are easy, right? None of these are like, um, you know, uh, people you casually read and sort of write summaries of. Um, but it really is what it what what the title says, right? It's a sustained definition of of theology for our moment in in some very deep way. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, before we even get inside the book, you know, why this title? Why this kind of title? What is theology? Yeah, I think it it's the title I intended the whole time. Like I just immediately knew that's what I wanted it to be. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that it gives a bit of a misleading impression that it's going to be like the Oxford, you know, very short introduction to theology or something like that. But Just I to did... be clear, I like the idea of tricking people with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, hopefully I get some extra sales from that. That's funny. But um, I think I wanted to say, like, this is what this is what I think theology can be. Like, it's less... It's less like that there's a set definition. It's more like this is what theology can do for us now. And like uh, like I say in the in the preface, I kind of start from the more constructive version, like maybe a, a, in a way like what people more expect theology to be, like making kind of positive, like almost prescriptive theological claims, you know. Yeah. Here's my reading of this figure or this tradition or this biblical passage, and here's the payoff of how it should apply to our life or at least our understanding of God or something like that. Yeah. And I think I get to gradually more kind of complex and more um, in a way like difficult or less intuitive uses for theology, like in the section about like theolo- like theology in philosophy, like what is theology as a mode of thought like doing for philosophy? Like what are these thinkers, why do they keep reaching for this type of thought that's often been contrasted with what they're doing? You know, like that, Uh, uh you know, theology is less grounded, less rational, you know, uh, more dogmatic, like, but, and yet these very radical and um, deeply critical thinkers keep reaching for these theological concepts and like, why? What are they? What is it doing for them? And then kind of that sets up the final investigation of like, what has theology done to us? You know, like this genealogy uh-huh. of how um, how theology has weirdly shaped our modern world so that we're still kind of following out these like doctrinal shapes or this kind of like, this weird um, experience of what it means to be human that kind of depends on this very specific concept of God and yet has become like detached from it and taken on a life of its own. Um, And so, yeah, like this kind of whole range of like, why would you care about theology? What does theology do for us? What does it do to us? Um, And I know that, the materials I've assembled are not the only possible materials by any means. Like they're sure, tied to my idiosyncratic history. But I mean, that's kind of the point too. Like I say, theology is always tied to this idiosyncratic history. Like that's one of the things that makes it theology. Mm-hmm. And to try to give this view from nowhere, I think would be um, dishonest or inconsistent with what I think theology is about. And so, I mean, maybe in, in some ways you've answered this question, but, you know, one of the things as I, as I read the book and then also as I, as I finished it and sort of started thinking back on it was, um, and that, which I wanted to ask you about was, you know, why this, why, why theology, why not political philosophy? Why not metaphysics of sociality? Right. Because we have. Uh, we, you know, there are available other ways of characterizing the kinds of themes that you want to talk about at, in a certain way, but of course, putting it in terms of theology allows, uh, you know, offers you like any choice of terms, a, a different set of uh, a different vocabulary, a different set of critical concepts, and so forth. But so, what 
motivated you? I mean, it could be personal, it could be widely intellectual or both, but you know, what motivated you to make that choice to, to center this project around the question of theology rather than political philosophy or even the, the, you know, secularity or sociality, you know, and so forth. Yeah. I think that, um, that's also an autobiographical thing. Like I've, um, been a theologian from a very young age, I think, in retrospect. Like some of my earliest uh, memories are like getting in trouble at church for asking the wrong questions or something like that. Or like mm. I was genuinely fascinated by the Bible from, from a very young age. And I was like stealing moments in, during church, like in the pew, like reading the reading different sections of the Bible, like during the service or something like that. Uh-huh. And so, and I think that one thing I found is that at least in my community, there was a certain way that theology mattered for how you live. Like in a way, like if I could win that argument, I could change what we're doing and the way people treat each other and the way people think about like what they're doing with their own lives. That there was ah, this kind of leverage that I that you would have over lived reality that people really, really care about that with philosophy or political theory or something like that is just um, not there in the same way. Um, And, you know, I've kind of remained hooked on theology, even as I've become um, increasingly, you know, distant from the church and, and the lived reality of Christian religion. Uh, Like I remember in grad school, you know, when I was at a theological seminary pursuing a PhD in theology, Uh Um, there was some funding opportunity that required that we PhD students like just show our face at a church a couple times um, just to check in. Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of my fellow students said, "Oh man, Adam, I saw you at church this morning," and I was started to make excuses, <laughs> like as though they uh-huh. caught me doing something <laughs> wrong. Like it was so foreign to me, but like theology remains like a re- my real intellectual passion. Like um, even now, like I teach in a great books program, which is very interdisciplinary. And I kind of, I sometimes characterize it as like everything studies. And like, I teach sure. these things that on the face of them are kind of absurd for a the- theology PhD to be teaching. Like I've even taught like the history of chemistry. Um, and, but whenever, whatever I'm teaching, whenever I'm teaching it, like I always kind of home in on the theological element, like in this history Uh of chemistry Uh class, there's like Pascal did some experiments that are like proving that a vacuum can exist where Aristotle says it can't. And I assigned to them this article about how that feeds directly into his theology in the Pensee. Uh Um, Interesting. And like I taught another course on cosmology and their first paper, um, like they had just had to do like an analysis of like some aspect of the natural world that's explained by ancient authors. And like half of them chose to talk about the role of the gods in these schemes. And Mm -hmm. that has to be my fault, right? Like, because that's what I'm constantly (laughs) drawn towards. And so- That's a good fault to take. Yeah, like as an intellectual project, like I've continued to remain very like fascinated and tuned into theology, even as I haven't been able to really teach it directly. Um, 
given my teaching situation. Um, and so I think that really feeds into why I think theology, I think it's important for me to be able to say that I am doing theology, uh-huh. that I'm not doing some other thing like with theological materials. And I think that you can see in my essays, even when I'm being the most kind of critical or the most kind of purely descriptive or something like that, like there's still, I can't help but build in at the end of that essay, like a, like the possibility like, okay, this is how theology is shaping us now, but there's a, there's a possible different theology that could shape us differently too. Yeah. Um, that I still see the existential stakes of it. Um, even though I have obviously a very strange and idiosyncratic relationship to it. Yeah. I mean, I believe the, uh, the root, I mean, it's not the same as theology, of course, but I believe the root of religion is to bind together, right? Religio. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, you mentioned the great books program. Uh, you know, I was schooled as an undergraduate in a great books program and I have, you know, lots of criticisms of that program. If, if, you know, I won't want to think like politically about it and, so forth. But I think one of the things that you pointed out is one of the things that I take as its ultimate value, which is this, I, this, not even just the idea, but an intellectual practice that the archive for something like chemistry is entwined with literature. It's, con- it's entwined with uh, theology. It's, it's entwined with philosophy yeah. and vice versa. You know, the, the scientific innovations, political adventures in atrocities are all so tied up with all of these things. And, right. um, and I like that, you know, that's, I, you know, in the end, I think that's what, why I was so interested in the book when it came out. I mean, I, I like your work generally. It's, just, it's extremely interesting. Uh, you have a really interesting theoretical voice, but that way of reading theology as not a discipline, but as part of this sort of existential fabric of, you know, events of meaning, events of crisis, uh, imperatives, um, and so forth. Um, you know, I think that's we, we need more of that idea of that element of the great books, you know, that everything is the archive of your Mm -hmm. particular discipline rather than your discipline having its own delimited archive, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was also partly what drew me to theology, um, aside from my personal history and personal connections, like for instance, with, uh, Ted Jennings, who I tried to, uh, give a, a tribute to, um, in the book that he's the first and last figure I cite, you know, um, that he unfortunately passed away unrelated to the pan- pandemic, but towards the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but I viewed theology as like the most interdisciplinary discipline. Yeah. Like that I could have easily gone to philosophy or something else um, or literature, but I, I viewed like theology as the most unlimited, uninhibited um, discipline and kind of the most adventurous in some ways. I mean, there's a lot of theology that's not very adventurous, but sure. Of course, (laughs) when it is, it really is. (laughs) I think that's really true. I mean, I, I'm someone who uh, was so out of touch with religiosity. I went to a Jesuit college and uh, my first class I called, I uh, called the priest who was teaching Jesuit priest who was teaching us uh, ancient Greek literature class called him by his first name. So this was my relationship to uh, religion, but I ended up being a theology minor and was just a course away from a major for exactly the reasons you're talking about. It's sort of, uh, 
I mean, it's, it's philosophy in so many ways, but it's infused with a kind of creativity in so many cases. And in, in, you know, in the case, in the way you treat it in this book and, and other of your works, you know, it's intensely infused with politics and, and the political. And um, it's hard to get something like philosophy to work across um, modes of, of thinking, right? But I, th- I think you're right that, that theology is in some ways an interdisciplinary it's a discipline. You have departments of theology, but in some ways, a deeply interdisciplinary uh, project. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, the critical concept that animates the book, of course, is this phrase political theology. You mentioned it, and it's a phrase that I think a lot of us came to through Carl Schmitt's work. But of course, this book of yours is not an explication or constant evocation of Schmitt, which I'm very thankful for. I get a little bit tired of Carl Schmitt's um, dominance around these kinds of questions. But other than that, sort of, you know, the politics of, of uh, citing and talking about Schmitt, but what what's at stake for that phrase, in that phrase for you? Because it's not simply, like I said this, and you said this is not an expository work. It's not mm-hmm. a study of figures. It has figures, but this is Adam's book, right? So, so what is at stake for you in that phrase, and how do you think it gets transformed across the project? Yeah, I think that um, one thing I really hold fast to is that if you use the phrase political theology to just mean like um, politically engaged theology or theology with political implications, like that's just redundant. That is what theology is. It always, always, always has to do with that. It always has to do with how we live in community and what the right values are and how society should be structured. Like, there's no theology that fails to be political theology in that sense. And so the term that I, the way that I use the term is to talk about, like, first of all, the very relationship between these two things that we, we view sometimes as though they should be unrelated. You know, like when Schmidt coins the term, it's kind of thumbing his nose at the secularism thesis, you know, that that yeah. theology should be this kind of private pursuit, like your kind of sick little hobby or something over here. Sick Keep little it to hobby. yourself. <laughs> and then politics is like the public, like real mm-hmm. thing going on. And if you have theological values that are motivating what you want politically, you have to pretend and find like secular reasons for it or something like that. Yeah. Like this theology is not meant to be part of the theological realm. And I mean, I think we can see that that, that is and has been unsustainable um, in, uh, in Western history um, that, you know, especially in the United States, uh, which in, in some interpretations has like kind of this, this very robust um, boundary between government and religion but somehow also the Western country in which like religion is most flourished and most kind of um, ramified itself into all of these different like strange forms in some cases. Mm-hmm. And so Schmidt is kind of debunking the secularism thing. And I just kind of take that debunking for granted. Like um, mm-hmm. you will almost never catch me even talking about secularism. Like I think like, the secularization thesis is just so obviously false. It has been so obviously disproven. It's not even worth discussing like religion and theology go together with politics and there's nothing we can do about it. 
And what I want to do is kind of like step back and ask like, why is that happening? Like, why do these two realms kind of belong together? Um, and, you know, as you know, I define it as like the study of the relationship between like institutions and the values that supposedly motivate them and how those things can often like seem to reinforce each other, but also like open up spaces of contradiction um, that basically political theology is about the study of legitimacy of like, why do we place our faith in certain political institutions or church uh-huh. institutions, depending on the situation. Um, and that I think you, in neoliberalism's demons in the first chapter, I very laboriously draw this understanding out of Schmidt um, to like legitimate my place in the field or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we all got to do that at some point. <laughs> by the time I get to the intro to what is theology, like I just take that as read. Like I said, yes, of course, this comes from Schmidt, but like I'm not going to be belaboring this anymore. Like kind of yeah. that by this point I've taken up, taken, taken that concept and make it made it my own in a way. So the chapter, and this, this relates, I think, to this, you know, um, your, um, I don't know, it's not even a version. You're just outright, you know, sort of laughing dismissal of, of, of the secular, which I agree with. I mean, I, I like that you just advance, um, in this book that way, um, around political theology. But one of the interest, one of the most interesting chapters for me was the third chapter on, on Zizek and signification around this, specifically around this phrase, materialist theology. And I'm curious to hear you talk about that phrase. Obviously, in the theological context, but context it does it could evoke the incarnation, it, you know, can evoke all kinds of things. But it's also interesting, you know, just to follow up on what you were saying, is that materialist theology is is not the same as the the sort of secular sacred, right? It's something else. Mm-hmm. So, what's at stake in that phrase? in that chapter, but also uh, for your own thinking, I guess. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, this is inspired in part by Zizek's approach to theology, which is another thing that I kind of laboriously worked out uh, in my first book, uh, Zizek and Theology. Um, But I think the basic insight that I'm using to kind of generate this concept of materialist theology is like, what if we took the gap between God and creation mm-hmm. and the contradiction between the two of those realities and we made that gap imminent to creation itself? Uh-huh. Like that the um, that it's not that there's this like perfection out there that, that we can't reach, but that um, there's not kind of a standard it's failing to live up to, and yet there are these kind of... Um, limits and contradictions and uh, finitude to matter itself that can be expressed in weirdly close to um, traditional theological terms. Like, I think that what makes it materialist is not simply that it is not talking about like a real God who exists out there or something like that, Mm -hmm. but that it, that it's talking about the kind of resistance of matter. The fact that um, that thought cannot fully saturate or determine it. Uh, The fact that there's something always pushing back. And like Mm -hmm. one site of theological reflection that gets at that is 
like the discourse on evil, obviously. But there's, as I try to show through my readings of Augustine and, and Dionysius, that there's always this kind of slippage where, like, on the one hand, this seems to be, like, evil in the morally problematic sense. But on the other hand, it seems like the ways they talk about evil are just, like, how creaturely reality works and has to work within the huh. theological scheme. Like, yeah. I, Christian theology is at such great pains to say that nothing limits God. Nothing can possibly stand against God. God doesn't need anything. But I think in its most rigorous and kind of intellectually honest thinkers, and I think in the right moments, Augustine is one of these thinkers, at least in the conclusion to confessions, like there is something to, there is a, there's something to matter that, does impose on God that does limit the ability of God to just enact his will completely and uninterruptedly that there's a resistance to, um, Mm -hmm. to matter. And that what if we made that resistance take the role that God usually takes in theology? Hmm. No, that's fantastic. I, I, this really interesting phrase. I'm I'm glad I asked because I like the way you put that. Um, and if it takes people back to confessions, that's a, a fantastic book. Um, I think confessions, I mean, just, just side note, um, I've always thought it was the most uh, underread, overread book. You know, it's a, it's a really uh, profound uh, piece of, of, of reflection on time and, and materiality. You know, the critique of the Manichaeans, you know, and Augustine's work generally, I mean, it resonates in exactly what you said as well. Yeah, it's really, um, my first sample teaching session was um, over book one of the Confessions. And the point that I wanted to take away uh, was that Augustine thinks that in all seriousness, babies are evil. <laughs> and like yeah, I almost them... got kicked out of college arguing with my theology professor about that. Yeah. As a principled childless person, I kind of find that... Um, attractive uh, for selfish reasons but i think like i i mean augustine is so off-putting to them and they also find him to be like exaggeratedly self-deprecating and like hung up on sex and like he's weeping too much and whatever but like he can say such unexpected things from unexpected like premises and if they let themselves Mm -hmm. into that i think that can be intellectually productive for them in a way that few texts are yeah absolutely so speaking of uh, of uh you know catholic traditions um you know i want to ask you it's, it's the thing that came to to mind picking up your book and reading your book is sort of in the back of my head while i read and so i thought i would ask you about it is um how do you understand the work that you're doing in this this book and maybe more widely, but in this book, obviously, in particular, uh, how you think of it in relation to what was in in my college days at a Jesuit uh, university, so this is 1987 to 1991, um, a tradition that was absolutely central to that campus, which was liberation theology, right? On the one hand, right, it's a tradition that's fallen out of favor in terms of, I think, public discourse broadly, but obviously also with the Catholic Church, 
but one of the things that that tradition did that was so interesting to me was and and why I was really you know I think compelled to study theology, uh, motivated by this was the way it embeds a critique of capitalism inside a certain hermeneutic of the story of Jesus, a way of interpreting and understanding, obviously a particular faith, right? Not just Christianity, but Catholicism, um, and also just an interpretation of this story. But it generated a theological basis for politics, right? Out of what uh, you know, Jean-Bertrand Aristide called in, in the title of his book, The Parish of the Poor. And I always thought that it was wrong to, to understand liberation theology and Gutierrez and Aristide in particular as somehow an overlaying of a, of a, of a, of a story about God on material reality. But instead, this is their, this is their Marxism, right? Is to see the theology emanating from the parish of the poor, right? And so in those material conditions. Now, I also know that that tradition did struggle with, you know, limits on God, God's authority, and so forth. But I just wonder, I guess it's in some ways, it's a simple, broad question. You know, do you think about your project in relation to something like liberation theology? Is it a productive relationship or are they just two very different projects? Yeah, liberation theology was very formative for me. Um, it was really central to the, the um, program at Chicago Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, literally the first course I ever taught um, was liberation theology, um, okay. and these like authors have been kind of omnipresent in my um, in my teaching and kind of in my thought. Like I don't do kind of um, expository work on them. Um, you know, they don't get cited uh, that much, um, other than James Cohn, who I have um, somehow slipped into the the Great Books curriculum. Uh, one of my proudest achievements. Nice move. Um, so I, yeah, <laughs> I teach James Cohen to my secular um, great book students um, almost every year. Um, and I think that, you know, they're coming at it from a confessional standpoint and a community standpoint that I don't share and that I'm not a part of. And so I wouldn't claim to be a liberation theologian, but I do always like, um, I think towards the end of both, um, both Prince of This World and Neoliberalism's Demons, I say, you know, there are alternatives to this traditional kind of destructive form of theology. You know, you would look to liberation theology and then like I kind of point out like some other like paths not taken in the tradition. And so they've always been kind of the, the example of good um, theology for me. Um, and I've always been offended by the kind of glib insistence that it just like that it failed or that it just went out of style or something like that. No, I'm not saying that you were making any type of glib statement like that at all, but yeah. like I think of like Christopher Hitchens. Um, I once read a column of his where he's like, Oh, liberation theology. Well, that didn't really work out. Did it? Ha ha. You know, cause he's the militant atheist or whatever. And like people died. People were tortured and disappeared and died over this. And if you look, if you take power's word for it, when they feel they need to destroy something, that they do find it threatening, then clearly it was a threat. It was a threat that, for whatever reason, um, 
didn't have the resources to stand up to the massive amount of violence uh, that um, that was poured into it. Like, and the the shameless violence, like assassinating Romero during the middle of mass, like yeah. just these incredible violations of like everything mm-hmm. that Western society is supposed to stand for in order to get rid of this. Like, I mm-hmm. think that shows the profound power that theology can have not just to reinforce power structures, but to challenge them. And I think that one of the most amazing things about liberation theology in all regions of the world and wherever it kind of took root, I mean, it was most associated with Latin America, but there are similar movements in, in Africa and Asia, you know, in, uh, among black communities in America, like everywhere that a subaltern group just sat down and read the Bible, mm-hmm. they noticed, oh my God, the very first and biggest thing that God does is lead a slave revolt. Like mm-hmm. Jesus is, um, you know, he's a, he's a peace activist. He's providing free healthcare. Like all of this, he's feeding people yeah. outside of the, the, the systems that exist. Like, if you just come at the Bible naively from the material condition that these people were in, yes, you are going to see that because it's there. It takes Mm -hmm. centuries of hard work and hermeneutics and getting people to read things backwards so that they don't see it anymore. Yep, exactly. Do you think, you know, just to sort of pose maybe um, some of the, it doesn't, I mean, I don't think it's a point of contrast, but maybe a point of distinction. I mean, I think one of the reasons just to, to think through this liberation theology, political theology uh, uh, question is, I think one of the reasons why Enrique Dussel is able to sort of bridge, you know, the ethics and politics of Emmanuel Levinas with his own investment in Latin American liberation theology <laughs> is because of how it emphasizes not emphasizes, but but argues for this sense of transcendence that's at the heart of the poor, that's at the heart of our political world, right? Mm-hmm. That the poor are, are a side of transcendence rather than imminence. But I, of course, that distinction between transcendence and imminence is one of the key like like breaking points in European philosophy among so many of the figures you talk about. And I wonder if that 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 imminence transcendence distinction is at all at work in in any of the differences or similarities between what you do around political theology and this liberation theology, which is, you know, as you as you were describing it, it's in some ways uh, closer to identification around the text, right? What it means to lead, to to read about the slave revolt of the Hebrew Bible, or or uh, you know the meek inheriting the earth, and the character of Jesus in the New Testament, um, and the radicalism that comes from that. But that I think the the deeper issue there is about a transcendence at the heart of the poor, and therefore at the heart of the world. Is that transcendence in your notion of political theology, or do you think your sense of political theology is more oriented around questions of eminence? Yeah, I think that I would probably. Uh, talk about it more in terms of imminence. I think the danger of transcendence is that it creates um, this alibi that, oh, we can never reach it. We never, of course, this world was never going to be like that. You know, of course, we have to wait yeah. until we 
get to heaven until we were transformed. Um, and then that becomes kind of theology in, in the, the sense I isolate from Judith Butler as like the theology that just sets you up to fail no matter what. I understand uh-huh. that like transcendence can be very powerful too, that it, it can provide a kind of um, like an outside standard or a point of leverage for critiquing a social system that is otherwise totalizing, you know, like mm-hmm. I understand that that's not the only use that transcendence has is to kind of set us up to fail. But I think that it always has that built in tendency that after that, emo- that moment of initial radicalism is kind of exhausted, then we fall back into this kind of quietism of like, well, it never was going to work. Was it like, we just got to yeah. wait for God. And I think that the the move of a materialist theology of kind of 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 seeing this contradiction, uh, like the existence of the poor, is a contradiction to everything that the modern world system is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that people are so desperately poor in this this world that has you know. NFTs and billionaires going to Mars and all, all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Like it's obscene. It's absolutely yeah. obscene. And it, it calls into question like the variability of humanity to govern itself at all. You know, that these two things can this be true. in the same world. It really and is true. So to me, like political theology isn't just about finding the parallels between the theological and um, political systems. It's mm-hmm. also, and primarily, and more interestingly, about finding the points of contradiction that yeah. become, that just as transcendence can be this kind of point of leverage, so too can these, uh, these points of contradiction for a kind of imminent transformation um, that um, because it's imminent, because it, we can't defer it to heaven or something like that, that it, we have to take action now. Because there's no, there's nobody who's coming to save us. There's nobody else to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, just listening to you, it's, it, I was anticipating sort of things you might say. I mean, it, if you bind God to the to the world, right, to the to finitude at some deep at some deep level, I think that's absolutely the the direction we have to be taken. And mm-hmm. um, and I like that emphasis on contradiction. I think that's that's in some ways some of the hardest thinking, but it's absolutely at the the heart of the matter. So it mm-hmm. has to be thought through. You know? And I, I think that's what I find so, you know, deceptive is not the right word, but so um, complex about your book is I do think it, it takes on this, this like level of impossibility and contradiction while also, you know, frankly, writing and thinking very clearly about <laughs> it because, we enter into, you know, when you enter into obscenity and 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 contradiction, uh, it's difficult to keep sort of a level language. <laughs> I don't know how else to quite to put it. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you about the third section. Uh, you, you know, you you suggested towards it earlier. Um, it was so interesting to me. Obviously, it's a, it's a collection, and so in some ways, it's going to have abrupt shifts, right? Uh, in terms of theme. I don't think the book reads as abrupt shifts. Um, and that's, that's an accomplishment. And also I think the consistency of your thinking across the essays. Um, 
And I think, you know, for those of us also in middle age career moments, it's like, do I have, it made me think, do I have consistent thoughts across time? Um, but the, like on the face of it, sort of shift that I found so interesting was the, was how you were able to move with real depth across European global North thinkers, you know, Bonhoeffer, Zizek, Butler, Derrida, and so far as we, we think of him as a European thinker, to then this shift towards a story about race and the modern racial order, right, in the third section. And I'm curious uh, about, about that in a couple of ways, right? What motivated that turn? Like what makes you, what made you want to make the book shift that way in its final third? But also, what do you think that the previous framing of it in terms of, of political theology and in terms of perhaps then also these specific thinkers allows us to see about the modern racial order, that story about race that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see? Because you know that's the way theorizing works, is you set up this conceptual apparatus that draws something out that would otherwise have have lay hidden. What do you think that you're framing your 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 critical concept sort of mobilization does to allow us to see something different about race and the modern racial order? Yeah, the the turn towards race, like it, it could have been unexpected. I, I understand that. Um, I've you know I've been um, trying to be accountable to thinkers from the global south and uh to the black tradition in some way throughout my work like you can even see this in like um politics of redemption my my dissertation like trying to situate my work in that sphere and yet i always felt kind of limited in my ability to work like on those figures directly uh, uh, maybe due to my own you know demographic characteristics uh, like, for instance, like writing on Judith Butler, I wrote about her, but not kind of as a queer theorist. Like I kind of wrote about her like kind of subjectivity, not which is tied up with her uh-huh. queer theory, but not like as that being the focus. And I think the turning point for me where I felt like that wasn't going to work anymore um, came when I was writing The Prince of This World. And... Um, you might be familiar from, with this from the intro or the preface, or I don't know what I called it, but um, I was listening to the news coverage of the grand jury um, investigation of Darren Wilson, the murderer of Michael Brown and Fer- Ferguson. And it quoted him as saying like that, you know, when Brown was, you know, approaching him as this, you know, impossibly big force that was surely going to kill him or whatever, like whatever lies he wanted to tell to the jury. And he said, it looks like a demon. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, like my whole thing is in that one little phrase. Yeah. And I couldn't not respond to that reality. And I think that the whole kind of, further incorporation of like black sources and black thinkers directly into my work, not just in the background, but like as something I'm working on was an attempt for me to retrospectively like earn the right, not that I ever fully could or whatever, but to, to kind of justify that I wasn't just instrumentalizing this quote, this, this quote that really 
what black people are saying about the dynamics of race is central to what I'm doing, that race isn't just an illustration of something, but that it's really a central dynamic of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that what my approach of political theology allows is to like get a different hold of what race is and what role it plays in the world system today. Because if you accept the kind of dyad between secular and religious, um, or you accept like progressive narratives, like on the one hand, race seems to be this kind of weird leftover element of prejudice, unjustified. Uh, Maybe if it's rooted in theology, that means that it's like backward and wrong and will necessarily wither away. And like, you don't really have to worry about it. It's just like, it's something that's already, already like fading away and you just don't have to deal with. And like the view of race as a secular reality, as a quiet quasi scientific reality like that's been disproven a million times over and yet it remains like weirdly persistent you know like charles murray comes out with another book saying what if racism were true wouldn't that be really interesting (laughs) and like so it seems like in the secular world the race thesis should be dead in in the ground just like lamarckian evolution or just like you know any number of like uh-huh. theories that turned out to be false but it's not it still has this attraction it still keeps popping up as this yeah. like un it's like this edgy truth that people aren't willing to accept or something like that yeah and i think that seeing race as a political theological concept that is about legitimating a certain social order you can see why it's not going away, why just describing it as theological or like old or outdated is not going to work. And you can see why it continues to hold this attraction. As long as society is still racist, as long as there is still a racial hierarchy, the the idea of race science is going to remain attractive and it's going to remain perennial. Not because it's true or there's any evidence of it, but because it plays this kind of theological role in legitimating um, an entire depraved social order. And so maybe that's that's a way into, or maybe even the full answer to, you know, what I thought. You know, just like, you know, I think like everybody, I read the, uh, you know, I look at the title, I look at the back, I read the acknowledgments, then I read the. Um, table of contents and the table of contents i i stay committed to reading uh cover to cover but i was tempted to go to the very last essay it's just a phenomenal title right the trinitarian century god governance and race so i just want to ask you about that title god governance and race and calling it the trinitarian century like what's what's going on there i mean i, I think in some ways you you gave a, a significant answer to it just now but um, it's just an amazing title and i'm i'm really glad that no editor stepped in and made you change that <laughs> the editors will do that you know so yeah i think it um it comes back to the first theological concept that i really worked with in a serious way in an academic setting was the the trinity and that was, there was, I mean, especially back in the early 2000s, uh, there was such a, a kind of trinity vogue, I think, among more traditionalist uh, 
theologians. But if you look back over the entire 20th century, the, the Trinity made this like amazing comeback as a site of theological reflection for traditional theologians, where previously it's like, well, it's a solved problem. Um, just kind of get it out of the way and then move on to the real issues. And I kind of was always like thinking, why? Why is this theme so reached for? Why is why does theology feel the need to kind of go back to this foundational moment? Uh-huh. Um, and I think the answer I come up with is that the 20th century was this era of like profound conflict and turmoil over what the kind of governing political theological paradigm was going to be. And that theologians were kind of trying to reassert their most large scale kind of ambitious Mm -hmm. um, theological concept as a, as a bid for Christianity to shape this world. And the reason that it failed, the reason that it sputtered out um, is because they were knocking on an open door that Christianity had already shaped the world, that, that, that the Trinitarian mode of governing the world um, that medieval theologians like kind of most thoroughly analyzed and, and articulated had already taken over. Um, and so there, there was no need for a new Trinitarian theology. Like the, the theology of the modern world is like the evil Trinity, let's say. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, evil it's Trinity. the essay out of this whole collection that is nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, you're the first person to have asked about it. Um, everybody wants to talk about race and original sin, but the Trinity one, they're like, wait, whoa, this is like too hard or something. <laughs> um, and it's the one that's been most kind of in development. I think that was, I've had that kind of in mind um, for many years. And in fact, I realized just reflecting on the process of me choosing my dissertation topic that in a way I wanted to like I noticed some of the things I was saying about Anselm, like that the angels can't be saved because they don't belong to the same race, but humans are the same race. And so they can be saved by Uh Christ. Like, I'm like, what is the Christian concept of race? Uh Like, where is this coming from? And this kind of represents my first attempt to, uh, to kind of cash that out. Well, I love the chapter. I love the chapter. I thought it was a, a fantastic essay, and um, yeah, well, I you know, God, governance, and race is is just a really great subtitle. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's guess, a nice. Go ahead. I guess you were asking me for like more explanation of what it means. No, no, basically, no, no. basically, my thesis is that going back to the biblical tradition, the Hebrew biblical tradition, that God has kind of two modes of governing the world, like one that's direct and obvious through miraculous signs, through just directly intervening, like laying down the law at Sinai, whatever. And then there's, they also have the faith that God is kind of manipulating Uh um, events behind the scenes. And this, these two modes of governance track with two human groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, basically Mm -hmm. that God directly governs the Jews, but indirectly kind of uses the Gentiles is like pawns on his chessboard 
And then I go through various iterations of that um, until yeah. we get to the kind of modern colonial world governance via um, a new racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it was a, a an incredible chapter, and it has its own harrowing kind of uh, resonance, as you point out. So, as you you know, this sort of last um, sort of question about about the you know how you conclude in this third uh section taking up questions of race and the 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 modern racial order um and this is really an invitation to be speculative if you want and and sort of uh you know wander uh with your imagination or claims a little bit um what do you think is the capacity of this notion of political theology, especially around questions of, of the modern racial order to travel. And I ask that because, you know, you just mentioned colonialism, right? That, that when you, when you see the relationship of, of this Trinitarian century to, to colonialism, right? That reaches back, as you say, back to biblical sources, but also the, the history of, of, of theology and, and, and religious philosophy, you know, now you've, you've sort of put some tentacles across the globe, right? So to speak. Um, so how do you think this notion of political theology travels? Do you think of it as primarily an Atlantic world? And, and, and if so, in what registers uh, phenomenon? Or do you think that this is something that is, is, has a sort of broader governance of our imaginary? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously I'm, focusing on the Atlantic world because that's where I am and that's the like legacy I feel I need to deal with. And um, I do think though that, that this concept of, of analyzing systems of legitimacy, that it does have this broader purchase um, potentially across um, world traditions. Um, I've kind of, um, been trying to uh, broaden my perspective uh, using like, you know, adjacent traditions. And I've done a lot of work on Islam as kind of a, Mm -hmm. like, from my perspective, reading it as like an alternate history of monotheism, you know, starting from slightly different premises from Christianity. And it obviously took very different forms and had, had different relationship between political institutions and, and theological institutions and really, um, really fascinating. But I think that the tools of political theology, um, I found them very productive in analyzing the Quran and in, in analyzing later, later Islamic texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my teaching in the great books program, um, several times I've done this kind of year long sequence, uh, which is meant to be, you know, we do kind of uh, courses in the three broad disciplinary areas of, of humanity, social science, and natural science that are organized around like important um, texts, but but are like more topical and less chronological. And so, for our senior um, kind of culminating experience, we have a year long sequence that goes from Gilgamesh to the present day. Mm-hmm. Um, that. Uh, and I, when I do it, it's from Gilgamesh to Wendy Brown. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a great title. I like that. I hope that's the actual title of the class. And, yeah. um, and so, um, for 
Gilgamesh. Okay, I, I, I haven't looked at the more like contemporary translation of it. You know, I still use the kind of like prose paragraph one that that the old Penguin edition that I happen to have. But at least in that one, the first paragraph of the human literary tradition in Gilgamesh mm-hmm. is that the people cry out against Gilgamesh to the gods because a king is supposed to be a shepherd, but he's abusing us. So the very first paragraph of the human literary tradition is a political theological concept. And Mm -hmm. like, if you trace that through to like the Iliad, like that, the Iliad shows like that power is always up for grabs. And it's the only text in the Greek tradition where Zeus is said to have been in danger of overthrow. Um, Uh Like that, like what kind of political theology is that? What kind of, what view of the world does that imply? And you, I mean, I can keep going. I've kind of had like in mind, like an essay collection of like the political theology of like things that are outside of, of the normal kind of uh, medieval to modern narrative that has dominated the field. You know, the, the political mm-hmm. theology of the Aeneid, the political theology of high Ibn Yaksan or like the, just uh-huh. kind of showing, you know, in, in things that I've been able to do in my teaching, at least how these, how these um, concepts would work out. Um, obviously the best of all would be if somebody who had like actual scholarly expertise in these other fields yeah. would like take up my concepts and show that they work. Um, and maybe, maybe they will. Well, I have to say, I mean, I asked that question, you know, because I want to know, you know, your own speculations, like I said, in, invitation to speculation, um, as well as, you know, what you just said, which is some really interesting emerging work around Islam. But one of the things that struck me about this book and, and my own writing and thinking is not around political theology, right? I'm not interested in the concept because I'm a scholar and have curiosities. But I, one of the things I took away from the book generally but really I felt got um, sort of uh, drawn home for me in the, the the final third was how much this notion of political theology is relevant for thinking about the long hangover of colonialism in post-colonial states. Mm-hmm. You know, that I think post-colonial theory often has a, a story about the slow death of colonialism, its institutionalization, outliving the sort of uh, revolution or independence moments and that you, you end up replicating these these colonial structures. But I think political theology as an animating element, you know, whether it's, you know, in India around partition, um, you know, the Rwandan genocide, you know, various kinds of ethnic conflicts, uh, you know, across Congo, you know, you can just proliferate. And my intuition upon finishing the books, so this is not, this came out of the book, was that one of the globalizations one of the features of the kinds of globalization that colonialism enacted was to embed this sense of political theology pretty deeply in, in political orders after the end of colonialism, right? And that, that atavism has never been strong enough in those, uh, in most of those independence contexts, independence contexts to overcome the place of political theology. I mean, I, it, it strikes me as a potential organizing principle for, or diagnostic tool really for uh, a whole variety of post-colonial uh, approaches, right? Not all, but um, mm-hmm. a whole uh, order of those. So that's more me responding to my own question, but, but more really taking up what you said is, you know, you said, I hope people read the book and take these tools and can do something with them. 
I think there's a lot of potential there, I have to say. Yeah, that's really interesting because surely the continued existence of these institutions as such could not produce such exaggerated results, right? Like there has to be a kind of a theology, a kind of like that that the the values inculcated by by colonialism still have to have a type of hold for this to work. Yeah. I mean, you have to be able to address in these contexts how you can you can kill off the colonizer, you can kill off their institutions, you can kill off their languages, and you can reproduce the the political conflicts and the right. forms of, of, of oppression, exploitation, necropolitics, and so forth. So, I mean, you know, there I said the word necropolitics. I mean, I think it link, <laughs> linking Agamben and Bembe and your own work, uh, perhaps. Um, so let me ask you this, uh, you know, a couple of, of final questions. Um, when we publish a book, we write the book, and it becomes the the uh, property of the reader at some deep level, right? They take with it what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that about bo- books I've written, but it also is a uh, can be a side of anxiety, you know, sort of where does this uh, go? But if we give up our authoritarian impulses to control the um, <laughs> the the message of our books. Um, and understand that readers take it from it what they want. We all also, you know, I think in a, in a, in a very ethical way, want our readers to be transformed in some ways by the book we write upon their reading it at the level of sensibilities that they just have a different kind of felt relationship to something. Right. Mm-hmm. And here you cover such a wide range in terms of, of philosophers, theologians, sacred texts, political institutions, geographies, and so forth. What, in that best way, do you hope readers take with them as they walk away from this book? I think what I most want them to take away is a sense of empowerment and a desire to not just study theology, but to attempt to do it in a sense. And, as, oh, and like the view that, that everybody can, that this tradition isn't just like, um, it doesn't just belong to a certain sect of people or a certain like backwards looking people, but that it, it matters for today and it matters that we continue to do it and develop it in more creative and more life affirming ways and that we need everybody to do that. I like that. That's. I'm glad I asked. That's. A, it's a fantastic. Because um, that's. I mean, the way you put it was very simple and straightforward. But the effects of that are deeply empowering. I think for thinkers and scholars, but also what it would do to to scholarship, to thinking about you know what you call material theology, right? Mm-hmm. The materiality of life and its theological dimensions. Um, that invitation to be creative and exploratory. Uh, um, and I think, I think the, I think that your book does push us that way for sure. But what about you? You know, we write books and we're transformed too. We're never the same people we were when we finish. This is a little bit different in that it, that it, it's a collection, but, um, but it's also a collection, as you were saying, you put together and had to think broadly about typologies and, and connections and so forth mm-hmm. and took real chances in that third section. So in terms of you, you know, how do you walk away from this book? I mean that in terms of how your own sensibilities have been impacted, but also, um, you know, if you wanted to, an invitation to talk about uh, next projects. 
Yeah, I think at the end of the day, this book kept me sane during the first kind of pandemic summer. Like, I I needed to be to remain connected to my scholarly work. I needed a project. I needed to, you know, as I'm like kind of stuck in the small apartment with somebody who's working at home, like there was a purely functional aspect to it to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. And there could also be like, you know, like, well, I guess it's about time for me to do an essay collection. I've been kind of putting out stuff out for long enough, but it did turn out to be kind of transformative and clarifying. And like, the the whole typology of philosophy versus theology you can look you can look up like blog posts where i i did that like 10 years ago 15 years ago like the basic idea of uh-huh. like theology is historically based and philosophy is like attempting to be universal or whatever but like the direction i took it was so different than i ever would have expected when i first sat down to write that essay and the same uh-huh. with like um the the race essays at the end I think the Trinitarian century, most of all, like that one's been percolating for a long time. Um, and uh, I had difficulty making myself understood in many occasions where I was trying to share that thesis. And like, I, I found like that talking about it in terms of race was really like what made everything snap into place. Mm-hmm. And um, similarly, even the essay on Agamben which I thought would be just like a kind of easy retread of stuff I do, like just really thinking seriously about what he's doing with theology and why he needs theology. Like that was new. And so I think in a way, like it's, it's like that phrase that I quoted from my interview with Agamben, like I saw that all my concepts were there, but I didn't realize it yet. Uh-huh. Like it kind of gave me like, not only have I arrived at this like thing at this kind of outlook at this, this like unique approach but that in a way everything's been building towards this and it gave me a kind of like affirmation of what i'm doing and that my career has not just been a series of random things but that it kind of adds up to something and that this this book adding up to something is also like all of my stuff kind of adding adding up to something um as for what to do next best best kind of midlife crisis by the way yes (laughs) realizing everything added up to something rather than you know some uh writerly version of a of a absurd sports car yeah but it at the at the same time yeah the sports car um i don't i don't really own a car at all so that (laughs) but so i had to do a book instead but um it it is i mean now that i've I've gotten past that first and now second pandemic um, summer. And the second one was not as, not as productive. I think I needed to kind of lay fallow. Um, I have to admit that these, these straightened circumstances and the inability to kind of interact with my colleagues in the way that I'm used to through talks and through conferences and stuff like that, like it's been hard for me to kind of gear back up um, to think about doing, um, new things. And I've kind of Mm -hmm. like some of the work I've been doing has been, um, like kind of further iterations of the neoliberalism's demons project, you know, like, Oh, did, did Biden abolish neoliberalism? Oh, it turned out he didn't or whatever. Um, did the pandemic cancel neoliberalism? No, it turns out it didn't. Um, but there is, I think that the, the race materials, 
are kind of like to continue to work through that question and how it fits in. Like I just gave a talk um, on Milton Friedman actually and his concept of freedom. And I wound up just kind of instinctively reaching for Orlando Patterson's account of freedom at the end of slavery and social death. Uh, uh And it produced what I think was like a real kind of advance on, on what I've been doing. And I think like probably just letting this, these, these concepts percolate and letting it maybe, maybe become more cohesive and see how things fit fit together more that for now, that'll be a, a kind of, um, a a kind of productive path forward. Um, But I think Mm -hmm. in the near term, the thing that I've been thinking out most concretely would be to take all the stuff I've been doing in neoliberalism's demons and in this book and in the Prince of this world and kind of put it in a new form for kind of a broader, non-academic audience. Um, Just kind of getting it down to like the core, the core concepts um, and hopefully having an impact on a broader audience. Um, I'm not sure how possible that will turn out to be, or if I'll be able to find the opportunity I need to do that. But I think that's what I'm thinking towards right now. Well, I, the challenge of public writing about this sort of material is difficult. It's a really tall order, but it's so urgent. And I think like our, our conversation, your book, um, your books generally, but as uh, this book, since we're talking about it today, really sort of just says, I feel like it's a big arrow, you know, flashing arrow to find a way to, to uh, produce a public facing version of this. Cause I think it's absolutely essential and it hits a sense of nuance that is really needed in terms of our public discourse around, around uh, religion and politics, which would be the vernacular, but uh, you know, polit- the political and the theological, you know, sort of more uh, academic <laughs> phrasing of it. So I look forward to seeing where that that takes you and, and reading all these um, twists that uh, will certainly happen along the way. But mostly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this book. I absolutely loved it. And um, I feel like this conversation has, has made the book uh, even more interesting. And I really loved it to begin with. So I appreciate you taking the time. Great. I appreciate the invitation too. And, and I have thought new thoughts as a result of your questions and our conversation. So I always uh, appreciate that. All right. Well, that's great. All right. Well, take care, Adam. All right.